Welcome to the Victorious Souls Podcast with self-love coach, Danielle Burnock. Things happen in our lives that make us feel powerless. But Danielle believes that anyone can become a victorious soul by reclaiming what belongs to them, their value, their belovedness, and their God-given superpower. The Victorious Souls Podcast is dedicated to empowering you to rise up, reclaim, and embrace the change from survive to thrive as a victorious soul through the power of love. And now, here's that lady on the internet who loves you, Danielle. Hello and welcome to my interview today for the Victorious Souls podcast. Today I have a treat for you. I have another love ambassador, someone like me, who their message is all about love. And her name is Laura Duxta. And she has a history of childhood trauma. And she's come out of that darkness into the light and has written numerous books, travels the world sharing her message of love. And I can't wait to bring her in here for you to meet her today. For those of you who don't know me, I am Danielle Burnock from DanielleBurnock.com. Love yourself from Survive to Thrive, that lady on the internet who loves you. Welcome, Laura. Thank you for being with me today. I told them I have another love ambassador with me today. I'm so excited. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Danielle. It's awesome to be here with you. Thank you. Uh, well, before we get into all the things that changed your life and that, let's give us a little bit of history of what was little Laura like as, as growing up, young Laura. Um, I just realized it might be helpful to um, bring a picture with me because as your audience can see, um, the ones that are seeing the video, I have no hair. Um, but as a child, I, I was born with a full head of brown wavy hair. Um, and my mom, you know, I... I I love both my parents dearly. My mother and father, though, met at a very young age, and he went off into the Air Force, and she didn't know that he, he was a wonderful writer, and he wrote her these beautiful letters and always Aww. sent her notes and you know, postcards and letters, but didn't realize that he struggled with alcohol. And when he came back and they made plans to get married, she didn't realize really that he was a like full-blown alcoholic. And so while there was love in my family, there was also um, fear and rage and being afraid and a, a lot of toxicity, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of yelling and uh, wondering where he was and if he was going to make it home at times, you know, and I was all really young at that time. And then when my sister was born, and especially when we got to the age where we would argue, my sister and I, then that's when the, it really became a problem, um, you know, when we had a lot of fear from my, around my, with my dad. So oh, wow. it was tough. Now, how old were you when your sister was born? Just two. So, uh, <clears throat> so I want to say, though, like that it probably... And it's interesting, right? Because we can always look back on things from our childhood and we wonder like, you know, what did we make it mean? What did we make it mean when my sister was born and my mother all of a sudden started, get, you know, needing to pay more attention to her 
like, mm -hmm. oh, I wasn't enough. Or now I kind of got passed to my dad and my dad was kind of, uh, like I said, toxic at times. And so, mm -hmm. and I've always kind of been like, oh, you're your father's daughter because my, I look a lot like my dad who's Lithuanian and my sister looks like my mom who's Italian and Greek. So, you know, was, was I the, a bad, the bad, the bad one. And, um, or like I said, kind of not enough, but then when my sister and I got to an age where we, you know, like siblings do fought a bit, then I always remember that it was, um, those times that, you know, my mother kind of at her wits end would be like, well, wait till your father gets home. And then he'd get home and it would be the, you know, find the belt and, um, you know, just unfortunately it was, he was repeating patterns from his childhood that he didn't have other ways of um, dealing with things now. So that's what he did. And, you know, ideally, hopefully, prayerfully, we all go and grow through those times and come out on the other side. Mm -hmm. How old were you when all of that took place? Your sister and you started fighting about what age did that take you place? Know, probably about you know five and seven six and eight um so we were like two years apart um mm -hmm. but that was also around the time that i uh you know my mother said when she was born she just wanted to do everything that i did so you know probably when she was like two and four she just like she was like always there so now i can look back on that and think like oh i could have thought how awesome is that but mm -hmm. instead i thought like who is this, you know, brat that interrupted my, you know, life and, um, you know, and now she just wants to, you know, do everything that I'm doing and follow me around and, um, you know, it's, it's just interesting, you know, how we see things and then it directs, you know, can pat pattern our whole life um, if we don't get them, you know, become aware of them and then mm -hmm. do something to heal or transform or get them complete. Um, so thankfully I've done a lot of that work and, but it was about well, also parents, how they communicate that to a child. Also, if they're intuitive enough to know that like, oh, well, your sister wants to be just like you. If maybe something had been said, then that forms how we think too, or, you know, or they don't say anything because they don't know, you know, it's, it's just another part of the process. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. And, you know, I think, um, I've become a, a believer that everything serves and I feel like I had the childhood that I had so that, and I don't know if you have a, a similar sense, I had the experiences that I had so that I could be the person that I am now. And I wouldn't trade the experiences that I had when I was young to, you know, for the, you know, for not, I'm, I'm right. grateful for we it. We wouldn't be who we are today without that. Right. If we went back and changed, they say, what would you change? I wouldn't change anything because I don't know who I'd be. Yeah. I know who I am now. I know what I've fought my way through. I know what I've worked on and mm -hmm. we can make use of it. Like you said, we can turn our pain into purpose is one way of putting it. So, right. Yep. So that's part of the journey. Um, you know, if life is kind of designed like that hero's journey, you know, <laughs> that was part of it for both of us, you know, knowing your, your background story. So yeah. it was about um, seven or eight years old, though, around that same time, it was I was learning something in um, Sunday school, and, and probably learning some things in school too, um, like around Martin Luther King Jr., or even Mother Teresa. Um, but learning, you know, I just 
I heard them in Sunday school talking about Jesus and how we're all meant to love one another. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, I heard this like voice inside of me or this awareness or this knowing. And it was just like, Jesus means everyone. He doesn't care what language you speak, what nationality you are, what religion you are, where you live. Like love is, you know, we're, we're brothers and sisters or sisters and brothers, and we're meant to love one another. And I was like, I, I remember being in the class and being like, I wanted to like raise up my hand and be like, one day I'm going to travel the world, meet my brothers and sisters and share the message of love. And that was when I was like seven or eight years old. Wow. And then some other things started happening. Yeah. You lost your hair. Like you said at the beginning, how did that happen? And how old were you? How'd that like come to pass? Was that sudden or over a course of time? Did they connect it with, you know, anything that happened or was it genetic? Yeah, it's um, all of those things. So <laughs> it took a while to get a diagnosis. So I had a, a long brown wavy hair and there was a small patch for quite a while, like maybe the size of a dime or in between a dime and a nickel. But it was easy enough to hide because it was on the back of my head. I didn't really see it. I could feel it with my cousin braided my hair. She saw it. But we also, it was, I lived in a um, family where, you know, we really didn't talk about things. And um, I even feel like that was kind of how things were, you know, back when I was young and maybe in New England, it was just like, you know, um, just denial, <laughs> the wonderful world of denial. So I... Uh, spent a lot of time. I spent a, a year or so there. And I, I feel it was just that one patch. And then all of a sudden, the summer that I turned 11, getting ready in between fifth and sixth grade and sixth grade mm -hmm. was still elementary school for me. But all of a sudden, all my hair started falling out in patches. And my um, first day of school picture, I looked like a 11 year old with a really terrible comb over trying to hide <laughs> all the patches. And, and over the summer, there were some pictures from swimming where like, you know, like, you know, you just see these big shiny bald spots underneath my patches of hair. But I still, well, it took a, quite a while to get a diagnosis. Um, my, you know, my mother couldn't ask Siri or Google. My daughter's losing her hair. What is it? So we went from doctor to doctor to doctor. And finally at Children's Hospital in Boston, the doctor said, it's alopecia. There's not really anything we can do. Get her a wig and nobody needs to know. And my mother just knew that that was terrible advice as a kindergarten teacher and as someone who had, you know, dealt with so many children and par parents. But I was fine with that. And my father was like, well, he was the, he's the doctor. He knows what he's talking about. And, you know, terrible advice, but we got me, a, um, we got away. And yeah, well, that just that part of the advice of no one needs to know. Yeah. That's like speaking, hiding into that, which would, which would have an undertow of shame exactly. because you're hiding this thing. And yeah. it's so cool that your mom was intuitive. You said she was a kindergarten teacher. She was for 38 years, which I'm sure has inspired a good a bit of what I do now. But um, yeah, so it, it's so, so interesting, right? Like going back, like there's just the way that things are said or shared and how we take them in. And my mother knew that it was bad advice and she wanted yeah. us to go to family therapy and tried her hardest to get us there. And we went sometimes, but we were just always she, she was just always hitting a wall um, with, mm -hmm. with me, with my father. So um, I got a wig and it was terrible because it was, um, well, they say that you're genetically predisposed. To, you can be genetically predisposed to it, but it skips generations. So somebody 
thinks that my grandmother's brother might have had it, mm. but we didn't talk about it. They didn't talk about it. Um, mm. And then, and I, I don't remember him um, or if I ever met him. And it can also be stress triggered. And for some adults, it's really clear that they lose a job or they um, get a divorce, they're in an accident and their hair starts falling out. And then sometimes it grows right back. And then for mm. some adults, it's a pattern of that and children. It's a pattern of it falling out and growing back, falling out and growing back. Um, they, I heard a doctor once say that they can't prove that it's stress trigger because it happens to children. And I was like, okay, well, that sounds kind of asinine because stress is relative and stress happens to children. And oh, it be, you think children don't have stress? Yes. Yeah. How do you some know, sometimes people think I wonder that? If I children heard, don't have stress. Oh my goodness. My grandson's yeah. got stress. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. So, um, and stress can be relative stress, or stress can be all different things. Stress can be, yeah. we're eating something that's causing our body stress so that we're like, you know, allergic to it. Oh, yeah. um, some people s swear that it happened around a time of getting their teeth done. Um, and there's some children that are just so deathly afraid of going to the dentist, right? And yeah. they scream with more than all of their being. <laughs> um, so, you know, where there's no definite um, known causes or triggers for it, or like it's this one thing. So it's an mm -hmm. autoimmune condition, um, which triggers hair loss. You're white blood cells are attacking your hair follicles like they're a foreign substance. Oh, wow. So like as if you get a cut and your white blood cells would go to work at healing that, your white blood cells have de decided that your hair follicles don't belong there. And so wow. they're allegedly doing their work. But <laughs> none of that really mattered to me. What mattered is I got this god awful wig that was really made for an older person. I have a really small head as it turns out anyway. So the wigs just didn't fit. They were not great styles for children. We didn't have access to the internet where we like today you can find companies that make wigs for children. Doesn't always make it easy because insurance doesn't want to pay for it. It's, it's um, cosmetic. You know, mm -hmm. when your child is, you know, being bullied or teased or, um, you know, and, and they feel like the answer is a wig and that's what they want. It's not cosmetic. It's more than that. But yeah, uh, that's mental health. That's emotional health. Right. And we're, we're becoming more aware of that. So yes, the world are, is going in that direction, which is, is. nice. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because of people, you know, like us who are uh, championing for different causes and things. But um, I got this wig and I decided that it, I was ashamed that there was something wrong with me, that I was never going to be able to do the things that I wanted to do. And I got the wig and put it on and I didn't look at myself in a mirror for 10 years without the wig on. And I wouldn't wow. say the word. So if people wanted to try to talk to me about it, I was not, wow. not interested. I was in a very small elementary school um, and then it, we transitioned into a regional four towns middle school the next wow. year. And I just, I don't really even remember having any friends in middle school. It just became very closed down and very- I imagine uh, that would be diverted. just so hard anyways. Four regions in one school, that's a lot of new people for a kid to meet. Yeah. And at that I mean, time, even under the best circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, uh, it is what it was, but it was, um, it was challenging. And, you know, fairly quickly, I started turning to, you know, started drinking younger than I um, 
you know, should have been. And that started, it turned into drinking too much. Um, you know, I always say it was, for me, it was more like drinking, sex, drugs, and dance music because I never did any drugs until I moved to South Beach, Miami. And then when I got there, that was like a whole nother thing that was introduced to me. And it was, you know, all forms of escape, all forms of like who I am and where I am right now isn't right, isn't enough, isn't where I want to be. And so I, um, you know, ended up swirling into all of these ways, trying to be be it someone and somewhere different. Wow. Wow. And then how was high school? Was it the same as like junior high? High school was an all girls Catholic school. And wow, that's we, a big difference from junior high. Yeah, it was. Wow. Talk and, about transitions just without having the wig part of and the shame. And wow, yeah, that's a yeah. lot. Yeah. <laughs> so we, um, but I had a carpool. And so it kind of became a, uh, like a little bit of an instant group of friends that, you know, the girls that I got to know, I still wouldn't let people in. I still wasn't looking in the mirror. I still wasn't talking about it, but I did slowly start to realize that I was learning things about life and love and compassion for others. So I became like a big champion of, you know, nobody should be discriminated against because of their race or their gender. Um, and I couldn't bring that compassion to myself necessarily, mm -hmm. but I became a stand for others, which I appreciated. And um, well, I, it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that that was the outlet that you found, whereas you needed that for yourself. But because you couldn't do that, then you found another way to at least generate that for others, almost like that was a coping mechanism. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would say so. a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I really I love the conversation that we're all one. And sometimes so like, you know, we're reflections of one another and we're kind of pawns in each other's games. And, um, you know, if you look at life like that, I. Um, you know, sometimes people will say that you can't love your others, anyone else until you learn to love yourself. But I think it was in, you know, learning to love others that I slowly began to allow others into my world. So it was, it was a, a, a I don't know, maybe life can always be a paradox and you can argue for both sides, but <laughs> definitely, <laughs> it, it definitely um, helped. It helped me um, realize that, right you know, nobody should be discriminated against or held down or uh, felt to be made wrong or less than because of any of these things. And I was like, okay, yeah, and look in the mirror, neither should you. Yeah. And so, yeah, it took, it took a while to get there, but um, happy to be on this side of it. Wonderful. And then you went to college and your friend that you, you suffered a loss then, did you know her in high school, meet her in college? Where did you go to college? Yeah, I went to um, Boston College for two years. Uh, I grew up in the Northeast in Massachusetts and went to BC for two years. And over, I guess my the first summer, I decided I wanted to stay up there. And through a roommate service, found uh, my friend Donna. And we went out to dinner the first night to get to know each other, or maybe it was before we decided that we would be, be roommates. And 
we just hit it off. And she was the first person I felt like really wanted to be my friend. We did everything together. We loved to go out dancing. Um, we just enjoyed each other's company. And after my second year, she was a graphic design student and went to the fine arts school in, in Boston, the fine arts museum school. So we weren't in the same college and she had finished up and I decided that I wanted to transfer to university of Maryland. And she was like, well, if you're going to Maryland, so am I. And I was like, wow, <laughs> she really does want to be my friend. And wow. so we had cool. made plans to leave Boston on a Friday night, go out dancing in New York city, go down to DC after that and get her a job and an apartment. And we did a job in Adams Morgan and an apartment on M Street in Georgetown. We went out to Pizzeria Uno, which was the place that we originally had gone out to a couple of years prior. And on the way back, we went to, and there's so many stories I could share. Um, we went to New York to dance again. And on the drive home, um, I remember hearing, well, actually first pulling onto the highway, I heard a voice tell me, put your seatbelt on. And this was 1988. We didn't always wear our seatbelts. And I said, no, I don't wear my seatbelt. And it said, put your seatbelt on. And I said, no, I don't wear my seatbelt. Put your seatbelt on. I said, okay, well, then I should tell Donna to put her seatbelt on too. And the voice said, no, it has to be her decision to have had her seatbelt on or not. And I remember wow. a song, Every Little Step You Take by Bobby Brown coming on. And that was one of our songs and kind of like looking at her and smiling and, you know, bopping up and down in the seats. And the next thing that I remember is the car was upside down and I was in my seatbelt and she had gone through the window and I was wearing a t-shirt that said, will somebody rescue me? And somebody was knocking on the window, you know, trying to get me uh, to, to know if I was okay. And so she ended up earning her wings that night and became my angel who I, um, I, I sign all my books now. I, I write children's books. We'll get to that. But I sign all my books, Keep Shining, because I have an angel beside me who reminds me to do so. But that, um, I don't know. I probably cried. I, I feel like I cried every day at some point for three years. Oh, yeah. It was a close friend. I, you yeah. just shared that. But there's the first one you felt that just really wanted to be your friend and you shared so many things and you're moving together. It's like, Oh, that's a huge loss. I'm so sorry for your loss. Yeah, it, it was, but now I look back and the two, you know, most traumatic things that have happened in my life, losing my hair and my best friend, um, no longer physically being here are, you know, and if I could have her back, would I, of course, but since it's the way that it is, it is unbelievable how she has shown up in angel ways and continues to do so 34 years later now. I just had the most epic, one of the most, ep yeah, no, the most epic um, <laughs> appearance. I've had so many awesome ones. It's amazing. So what's really incredible was she claimed to be an atheist, which, you know, growing up in a Catholic tradition, it didn't really resonate me Catholicism with Catholicism because I don't think that there's one way necessarily. I just always kind of, you know, from that age of seven or eight, I was like, Jesus loves everybody. And so should, you know, so do I, and so should we. Um, and, you know, there's different paths, um, you know, we're on this planet, but um, 
So she claimed to be an atheist, but she kept, she showed up to me right away. So I got this like sense and this knowing that life goes on, that our, you know, our angels, our friends, our loved ones are there with us after they're no longer physically with us. It was so clear and uh, continues to be so clear to today. I'll share um, an epic story that happened. Um, I was just up in Massachusetts for the summer and um, I was with her. That's Donna grew up in Maine and I've stayed very good friends with her cousin, Sarah, who now has three daughters that, you know, they never got to meet her aunt Donna. So we spend a good you know time together sharing um, stories and letting them learn about who she was. And I was in Maine with Sarah this summer and we were going to meet with um, Donna's brother, Jimmy, who was 17 at the time of the accident and was really um, not present at the funeral. He just kind of hung out in the back and was really, you know, scared. And we've connected on social media, but we had never gotten together in person over the last, like, say, like 10 years or so. And so this summer I'm up there with Sarah and Jimmy canceled on us at first because he was got really anxious. He has got some anxiety issues, but then he called later. And I, I said to Sarah, I was like, or, you know, I said, Donna better make herself present today. Um, I want her, I want to know that she's with us. And something happened earlier in the day that I won't go into, but then the three of us, Sarah, Jimmy, Donna's brother, and I are sitting at dinner at like eight o'clock at night at a steakhouse of all things in Maine. And my mother calls me and she says, and I, I so I picked up the phone quick and she's like, did you see my text? And I was like, okay. She's like, check, check the text. And so I went and I saw that she sent a text about um, my aunt and uncle in the restaurant that we used to own. I didn't see the previous one. So in the morning, I'm scrolling through my texts and my mother, while she was at my house, at our apartment in Massachusetts that we were getting ready to get rid of and go, she was going through things. She found while the three of us were sitting at dinner together, a letter and I told you Donna was an artist. She had drawn a picture of Jimmy in pencil, sketched a, a picture and wrote Jimmy at the top. And on the back, she wrote a letter to him with a PS to the dad. I didn't even know I had this. And my mother found it while the three of us were at dinner together 34 years after the accident. It was the first wow. time that I'd ever seen it. Wow. I brought it over to Sarah in the morning. I was like, who, is who do you think this is? And she's like, that looks like Jimmy. And I didn't show her the top. I was like, it is Jimmy. And it's a letter from Donna that never, none of us have ever seen that was mixed up in my mother's things from after the accident 34, four years ago. Wow. And it showed up that day. There's no denying <laughs> that was Donna herself making it known that she is still with us. Yeah. Wow. So how did you get past all these losses and get into what you're doing now? Yeah, well, it was um, part Donna, part God, part, you know, big parts love. So I ended up, the, that accident happened in Connecticut in um, 1988, right? 1988. And nine years later, I was back in Connecticut for the first time. Um, I was working as a bartender. <laughs> and manager of a very busy restaurant and bar in South Beach, Miami. And a friend's brother was opening up a nightclub in Hartford, Connecticut. 
So about 10 of us went up that to, to the club for the opening and to give the club a little South Beach flavor. And the owner had also brought up a DJ that I didn't know, but he, uh, he was also from South Beach. And so it's opening night of this nightclub and there's probably at least 800 people. It was a small place, but maybe 800 or 1,000 people in the place. It was wall to wall packed, more people I'm sure than were supposed to be in there. <laughs> and the DJ was up on like a second level. And at this mm -hmm. time I was standing against the DJ booth wall the, mm -hmm. and he played this song and it had, it was dance music, boom, 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 but it had these beautiful vocals in it. And I heard the vocals, but I didn't hear the words. And all of a sudden tears were pouring down my face. And I was like, you know, it's the middle of the nightclub. It was bizarre and odd, but it just was happening. So later after the club closed, I said to Jeff, I said, you know, you played this song tonight. He goes, I know which one it was. I was like, I don't even know what it was. He's like, I know what it was. So he brought me up into the DJ booth and he went to put the song on. And I was like, no, it was the beginning. I had no idea. He's like, no, it's not. It's the middle. And he dropped the needle and the vocals started to play and tears started pouring down my face. And I'm like, what is going on? I didn't hear the words. He sent me a cassette because this was 1997, <laughs> um, South Beach. And it was the last song that he put on the cassette. And it turns out it was called Shine. And the song said, there will be feelings you have never felt there will be questions in your mind. Your sister left your side to help you grow. And now she watches while you shine. The soul of an angel touched from above. Your spirit is shining, surrounded by love, the soul of an angel. So I didn't hear those <laughs> words that night um, in my ears. I guess I, my body heard them. That night of the same night of the opening of the nightclub, I found myself praying for my sister. She was going through a hard time in her then marriage and was pregnant with her second child. And she had called me to say that her and Doug had gotten into a big argument and he had left. And usually I would drop everything and go over there, but I was away. So that night I was praying for her and I was like, oh, this is strange. I don't really pray like this anymore. Like a dear God, please watch over your sister. She could really use your help. And I'm not there. Amazing <laughs> what happens when we get out of the way. <laughs> um, so something clearly answered me and said, your sister's fine. Pray for your nephew. And what's interesting is I had been over one time when my sister and my th then brother-in-law were arguing upstairs and we were outside on the deck and he was about two and didn't have words. And I just remember him like looking up, um, you know, like peeking his head in the slider that was partly open and looking upstairs and there was something in my heart that like broke open. And I remember thinking like, wow, that must be what it felt like when I was young. And, you know, here he is, like, this is what he, his, the world that he knows and it's pretty toxic. And so I think that like part of the seed was planted there. Well, this night I'm praying for my sister and something clearly answers me and says, your sister's fine, pray for your nephew. And I'm like, oh, this is even stranger. Not only do I not pray like this, but something just clearly answered me. And as I began praying for my nephew, the whole idea for my first book poured through me. And to the point, it was like, I mean, it was energy, the white light, you know, just total <laughs> divine inspiration. And I got up and pulled out a piece of hotel stationery and started writing the ideas that were coming through down. And one of my friends woke up and said, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm writing a children's book. And it was going to be called, I love you more, which wasn't a phrase that we used in my family. We say, I love you. And I love you too. 
but I like kind of like woke up the next day telling everybody like I had this idea for a children's book. I'm going to write a children's book and I had no idea how to make it happen. But um, one thing led to the next thing. Well, that a few months later, six months later, actually, I turned 30 and all of a sudden I decided I'm not going to wear wigs anymore. And I didn't realize that it was related. But now I realized how consumed I was by the fact that I wore wigs. And now I go into schools and share with young people and adults about the power of being yourself and how that's what really works best and that we can go through the most challenging and difficult things and they can come out and they can become our biggest gifts. And so I couldn't imagine a better, um, you know, a better life and a better experience now. Um, but it all stemmed from that, stemmed from so much, but that um, wanting my nephew to know that he was loved. And then we ended up sending the book to print. I Love You More has been in the world now for 21 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, we sent the book to print on September 10th, 2001, wow. the day before the 11th. And I was on a phone call with my coach the next day at 9 a.m. that was scheduled. And her husband's like, you need to get off the phone. And my sister's like, something's going on. You need to get off the phone. And my coach said, there's nothing that's more important than this book right now. And we didn't know what was going on, but in truth, there's nothing that's more important than love. Amen. And the only thing that was going to get us through these, you know, dark times and these traumatic incidences is love. And so I came to believe that the book was written so that we all know that no matter what's going on in our life or in the world around us, how truly loved we are. Amen. And that's, I think, what we both spend our days <laughs> helping people know. <laughs> So it was when you were in the process of writing this book and the notes and all of that, that that's when you suddenly stopped wearing wigs. You started yeah. internalizing that message to yourself. Is that what happened? That is. And I didn't realize. So now I say like the prayer was for my nephew and my sister. It turned out that it was for the world, but it was also really for me too. It like it, all of a sudden I was like, whoa, this isn't what I wanted to do with my life, being a bartender and, you know, manager of nightclubs. And I had, now I had this idea to write this book, but it was very, it came through very specifically for my nephew. So it needed to be edited. And, um, and then How we old was he it, at the time he was, um, all right. So he was probably about, see, I always think he was two because my sister was pregnant with her other child. But so it was a slow process from the time the book was an idea to the time it was actually in the world. It was four years. Mm. So it was about six months later that I turned 30 and I, that's when I took the wigs off and was like, what am I doing with my life? And I moved, I actually had moved to Connecticut to run that nightclub. I moved back to Florida and got a job, um, and it was interesting getting a job for the first time without a wig because I could go in and make somebody comfortable, but then they had to believe that their patrons were going to be comfortable. And mm -hmm. um, so he was, by the time we got the book done, he was, yes, yeah, six. That, that makes sense. He was in um, kindergarten or first grade when I got to go in to his classroom for the first time and got to go up to my mother's classroom and read the book and your mother's yeah. classroom too that's so yeah. cool yeah it was awesome <laughs> it was amazing yeah and the newspaper came out and did stories and my mother and I do a lot of events we just finished an event this weekend where 
will be out at an art festival for the weekend and she'll she shares about the book while I'm signing and you know we're both sharing about it <clears throat> but it's so beautiful and it was a real <clears throat> excuse me there was a really beautiful story um written once a woman saw my mom and I it was actually an Easter week I think it was an Easter weekend or maybe it was the weekend before but she watched us sharing this message of love and just the really the joy that it brings people in now it's so neat about doing it 20 for 20 years people come up to us and they're like oh my god I read this book to my children every night for you know three years and you're such a big part of our family and now we say I love you more because you know of the book and it's you know young people come up and they're like oh this is my favorite book I remember my mother reading it to me so we really enjoy being out at events for that reason but this one woman watched and then she went to church and then she she it turns out she was a writer and she wrote this beautiful article she's like really the love that I felt this weekend was from you know these two women on the street sharing about this book it was so awesome to see the mother and daughter together but then the message that they were sharing and um, it's it's so special. And she's like, and then I kind of like went into church and it, the, the message fell flat a little bit. You know, she was kind of, you know, she wanted to be there in church, but she's like, let's get our act together. Let's, you know, like make this more of a space where um, people know that they're loved and have the experience of it rather than just maybe speaking it. So mm-hmm. that's pretty special. Wow. Yeah. We say, I love you more in our family. I think it was I don't know, it was either my daughter or my daughter-in-law, one of the two, maybe both of them, that, that they started it. And I don't even remember when it started, but we do that all the time. I say, I love you. I say, I love you more yeah. <laughs> all um, the time. So it's like, I, I have no idea if they have this in their, their past at all. So yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to find out. And some people don't, right? They're, but they're like, oh my God, that's what we say in our family. So they get it for their mom or their sister-in-law or their um, mm-hmm. one gentleman fairly recently, about a year ago, he bought the book for his sister-in-law an older gentleman after his brother had passed but they said it in their family and he found me at a fairly recent art festival and he said I just want to let you know that this is my sister said put the book in her will and she said that the book is never to be given away or sold that it's meant to be passed down from generation to generation and she said that it might be the most important purchase that our family has ever made wow that's so, powerful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it, it's amazing when I'm sitting there and the, my, 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 my mom is sitting there with me and he, we hear these stories and, you know, he's like, do you remember me? And he, it was just, yeah, it was, it's very neat. Um, but we're blessed that so many people say the phrase because, and that's what I feel like I'm doing now. What I feel like I'm doing now is planting seeds. Mm-hmm. So when the conversation of love is, um, readily available in a family great you know this just complements it but then in families where sometimes it's a little bit harder to say it this can help provide access to it and I feel like you know the more children that are hearing this book and message over and over and over again every night for years it's good for the healing of the adults that are reading it for their Mm -hmm. inner child and then for the children to hear it that's wonderful. You have another book too, though, don't you? Or do you have a couple more books? I have a few books, yes. So my second book was this one, You Are a Gift to the World, and the world is a gift to you. So my books are done in this flip format, and we didn't do that on purpose, but it turns out 
that it represents the infinite nature of love as well as the giving and receiving of love, which is it, it's really represented nicely in the in the book. But you get to a big page here where it says, I love you more than anything in the whole wide world. And that's where you close the book and flip it over. And on one side, the child asks, how much do you love me? And when you flip it over, you ask the child. And a few years after I had self-published the book to start, that voice came to me again. I was driving on the highway in Massachusetts and tears started pouring down my face and I had to pull over because it was like it was raining in my car. And the voice said, I was listening to one of my favorite ministers and I don't remember if it was something that he said or what triggered it, but the voice said, your book is really a message between God or creator and child, but the relationship everyone would understand is mother and child. Mm -hmm. So the, the book can also be read like that. And I asked for guidance and how I wanted to sign this book. And I write, dear Danielle, you are a magnificent gift to your family and the world. And I used to always write, always know how truly loved you are. Now, a lot of times I write like, especially to your um, mom, she loves you more if they say that in their family. And then I sign my name, keep shining for my angel, Laura Duxta. So that turned into this book, which is you are a gift to the world and the world is a gift to you, that message that I sign. And this book is temporarily out of print. It's been out of print for a little while now. It didn't do as well as the publisher wanted it to do. Mm -hmm. So I get asked for it often. So I'm going to be getting it back, but I have it set up now. If people sign up for my newsletter on my website, they receive a free download of this one. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then I have I'll Hug You More, which right now I just have in this little padded book format and it's times throughout the day that you'll hug the little ones and that they'll hug you to share and show their love which is awesome right love and yeah. connection and appreciation for ourselves yeah. one another in the world we live in yeah and hugs are demonstrations newest... of love <laughs> yeah. the newest book that I'm working on now is no matter what you are loved and yeah. this is taking a little bit longer to get in the world but um we're working on it now and hopefully by the beginning middle maybe of next year it'll be available for our purchase okay that's yeah. awesome so and you travel around the world not just the country what are some countries you have been to where are some places yeah. you have been to well the i'd say the biggest place that I've, I've traveled not as much as i want to so what's interesting and i don't know well the last you, two years kind of put a damper on that yes, i'm on sure that. So. <laughs> but so i had said that i want to travel the world meet my sisters and brothers and then share the message of love and what was interesting about living in fort lauderdale especially and i just did an, another event in fort lauderdale here over the last two days but people from all over the world come here so people are like, oh, I, I need your book. And it's going to Montreal. Oh, I need your book. It's going to Malaysia. I need your book. I'm sending this one to Australia. This one's going to Montana. This one's going to California. This one's going to South America. It was wild. And I was like, this one's going to Germany and France. And I was like, oh, I'm like, I am traveling the world with my message of love. <laughs> and and sharing it which is amazing um but i was like whoa i'm like i meant physically traveling the world <laughs> so um i've gotten to do some of that this past summer i visited virtually three libraries in africa which was really oh, wow. super special and oh, yeah. the last i think we have the book is in eight languages now and the most recent publisher is in vietnam and they had me do a virtual um, 
gathering with families. Um, they have I Love You More and I'll Hug You More published in both English and Vietnamese. It's kind of neat the way that they did the books. So I have gotten to travel to Italy and Greece and Buenos Aires and um, was able to be a keynote speaker at a big event in Jamaica. But um, I have not traveled the world quite as much as I plan to, but all well, over. You're not done yet. <laughs> yeah, I'm not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can still do that. So yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So how can people connect with you if they want to do a virtual or invite you to wherever they are at? How do people connect with you? Yeah, so one of the biggest things that I do are my school programs. So I mostly visit elementary schools, but I also do middle schools and high schools, which are so important to um you know, my books are picture books, but my whole experience and the life experience really resonates with the older students as well. Mm -hmm. But they, and I have a program, you are a star, keep shining, where <laughs> I share about my experience as an author, but then also my life experiences. Um, they can visit my website and find me on social media. And my website is my name, which is Laura, L-A-U-R-A, and then Duxta, D-U-K-S-T-A.com. Awesome. So is there anything you want to make sure to say before we tie this up here? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's just, um, I love how much our messages <laughs> resonate, right? We just want every child to know that no matter what, you Amen. are loved. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I said it already that no matter what's going on, no matter what others say or do, no matter what's going on in your life or in the world around Amen. you, always Amen. know how truly loved you are. Amen. And I will just echo that also. That's why I come on here and I tell you I'm that lady on the internet who loves you because I want adult children need to know, but adults need to know also. So I think we're a great compliment. You focus on the children. I'm starting to think about doing a children's book, but I don't have one yet. It's like, oh, that'd be such a good thing to do. So who knows, maybe in the future, but the adults that grew up without books like that for them to know, no matter what, you are loved. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Danielle. We are the women on the internet that love you. I love that. <laughs> Amen, we <laughs> are. And so my beloved audience, I love you. So until next time, bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Victorious Souls podcast. You matter and you are loved. We'd love to connect with you further. So please visit us at daniellebernock.com and grab a copy of Danielle's free audiobook. And remember, only you can change your life. No one can do it for you.